0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to our first reading, which comes from Numbers chapter 23. We'll read together into verses 13 through 26. Then Balak said to him, come with me to another place where you can see them. You will see only a part, but not all of them. And from there, curse them for me. So he took him to the field of Zophim on the top of Pisgah, and there he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I meet with him over there. The Lord met with Balaam and put a message in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went to him and found him standing beside his offering with the princes of Moab. Balak asked him, him, what did the Lord say? Then he uttered this oracle. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed And I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob. No misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion. That does not rest till he devours his prey and drinks the blood of his victims. Then Balak said to Balaam, "Neither curse them at all nor bless them at all." Balaam answered, "Did I not tell you I must do whatever the Lord says?" We'll turn now to the New Testament for our second reading, and we'll read from Second Peter chapter one, the verses three through eleven. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in this world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness and to goodness, knowledge and to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and he has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text this morning is Titus chapter 1, the verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, ...for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith... Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the last words of our text this morning are words that in one form or another we hear every Sunday twice. And we read them in most of the letters of the New Testament You hear those words grace and peace so often that they can start to become like background noise. You don't notice them anymore. Or like some sort of ritual that we do in order to get the service started and to move on to other things. But the blessing of the grace and peace of God the Father and Jesus Christ, the conferring of that blessing is no mere ritual. It's not something that we just do so that we can move on. It's a significant part of the letters of Paul as he writes to churches and individuals and other writers in the New Testament and also of our worship service. It's meaningful and significant that the grace And peace of God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior is given to us, is conferred upon us through those words. We need the grace of God. We need the peace of God because it is our life. Without the grace and peace of God, we have nothing. We would not exist. We would be dead. But we're here for more than our existence. We've been giving our marching orders as the church by Jesus Christ. And so the grace of God that comes to us and the peace of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and the peace of Jesus Christ comes to us as we need them for carrying out the plan of God. For the church. God gives us his grace and peace because we need that in order to do that for which he has purposed us in order to carry out his eternal plan as his church for the world. And so let us take note of those words. And let us this morning also consider why we need to hear those words we see here in our text this morning that as the Apostle Paul introduces himself, he he reveals, he unfolds the priorities of Jesus Christ for the church, the very things for which we need the grace and peace of God. As the Apostle Paul introduces himself in, his, in our text this morning, he reveals the priorities of Jesus Christ for the church. Now notice that the apostle Paul doesn't actually mention the church in his introduction. He doesn't say the word church there at all. But still, everything that he is saying here is about the church. And that's characteristic, in fact, of these letters, these, these letters of Paul, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. They're known as the pastoral letters because they're written to pastors. And It's characteristic of these letters that they're very much concerned with the church. Yes, they're addressed to Titus, but actually as as you read along, you'll see that he's addressing the church really through Titus. But even so... He's focused on the church in these letters and on Titus especially. Almost everything that he says going on from here is about the functioning of the church. And that seems to be because as the ministry of the apostle Paul matures, as he gets older in age, as, as the gospel continues to go out, so does his focus on the body of Jesus Christ, on the church, for its health and for its benefit and you might say, for its survival. He's concerned that this church, that he is working so faithfully to to begin through the preaching of the gospel, that this church would continue to the next generation and to the generation after that and to the generation after that. And so what do you think? We're here, almost 2,000 years later, the church Continues to survive in this world. The apostle Paul has said the right things. We can say to Paul, well done. That work that you put into, into preserving the church for the next generation, it's paid off. Well done, good and faithful servant. But if we were to say that, the apostle Paul himself would probably protest. You would say it's nothing that I've done that has allowed the church to survive all these years. It's not my words that were the strength of the church. It was the word of God. It was God himself who has preserved his church and he has simply used me for that. And that's how the Apostle Paul introduces himself. He says he's Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. A servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word that he uses for For servant there is literally the word for slave. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. That's the word that you would use to describe someone that you owned. If you owned someone, they were in your service. They had no freedom outside of your household. You would call them a doulos, a slave. And that's how the Apostle Paul introduces himself there. Paul's life is not his own. His personal interests, his goals are gone. And his whole life now has been brought into the service of God with the goals and the priorities of God in heaven. Now being Paul's. And that idea carries over into the very next word, apostle, which means sent one. As a slave of God, Paul's overwhelming purpose is caught up in the call to go out into the world, just as Jesus Christ sent his disciples to the call to go out into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what apostle means. It means sent one. Paul was sent directly by Jesus Christ Out into the world to preach the good news. And so his whole life has been brought into conformity with the message, with the mission of Jesus Christ. And that means that he's a slave and a servant. Yes, an apostle, humble words. But yet at the same time, it means that when the apostle Paul speaks, he speaks with the authority of Jesus Christ. He speaks with the authority of God. He comes on their behalf. God's mission is Paul's mission. Christ's message is Paul's message. And so as the Apostle Paul speaks about his calling here, he's revealing the priorities of God and of Jesus Christ for, yes, Paul, but also for his church. These are the things that God through Jesus Christ is doing in the world. And the twin priorities that the Apostle Paul has been sent out with are for the faith of God's elect and for the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So in the first place, Paul works for the faith of God's elect. Now, when Paul speaks about God's elect here, he is almost certainly speaking about God's eternal decree of election. God's eternal plan cast in eternity. The biblical teaching that God has in eternity chosen a definite number of specific persons to receive salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the plan that God laid out even before the creation of the world. The Apostle Paul himself certainly speaks about that plan elsewhere. Romans 9 through 11 for one Ephesians chapter one. For another example, but also right here in our text in verse 2, you can see that he's focused, his mind is with eternity, and as he says, the promises of God, which God promised before the beginning of time. The Apostle Paul has no problem speaking about eternity and God's eternal plan of salvation and of election. Now, of course, bringing up the topic of election always seems to bring up all these other questions along with it. Uh, all kinds of hard questions, difficult questions, questions such as, well, do we know who's elect? It's almost like if you believe in the doctrine of election, somehow you're supposed to then also know who's elect and who's not. Even though that's not part of understanding the doctrine of election. We don't know who Is elect. We can't sort of pinpoint other people and say, well that's, that person's in, that person's not, that person was elected before the beginning of time. No, not at all. And the apostle Paul didn't know that either. But he's not saying that he discriminates between certain people when he works for the faith of God's elect. Not at all. It's not as though he says to someone, well I'm not gonna bother about you because clearly you're not elect. No, the Apostle Paul goes into the world preaching the gospel freely to everyone who will hear and calling all of them. Yes, among the people of God and beyond, as he goes first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. You are all called to believe in Jesus Christ, to repent and believe the good news. That's the free call of the gospel that the church has been commissioned to bring which Paul had been commissioned to bring. And he did it everywhere. He went into places of opposition, of disdain, of rampant godliness, in order to call everyone to faith. Those who believe in election do this. That's what the Apostle Paul did. And that's what we're called to do as well. Now, some people would challenge The doctrine of election, because they say, well, to believe in that means that you don't need to evangelize. If God knows those who are his, then the church doesn't need to evangelize. And clearly we're supposed to evangelize. And therefore, I don't believe in the doctrine of election. Well, the apostle Paul, for one, was rock solid on the doctrine of election. He had no problem saying that before the creation of the world, God knew those who were his and he had determined to save them. And history unfolded that plan and how God would save them. But at the same time, the Apostle Paul was the preeminent evangelist for the church. And so it sounds like a false dilemma. The Apostle Paul breaks right through that one. Instead, what Paul mentioning that he works for the faith of God's elect highlights is the position that the Apostle Paul saw himself in. He was simply a tool of God. He was simply God's vessel that God would use as God worked out His plan of salvation. God knows those who are His and He will use apostles like Paul. He will use the church to work out His plan. He will use the message of the gospel to call those who are His and to call many others besides. And some will reject that news. But those that God is determined to save will hear and will believe. God will work in them a response to the call of the gospel. God will grant them faith so that they embrace the good news that Jesus Christ has died for their sin. Jesus Christ has risen to life for the renewal of their life. Jesus Christ has secured an eternal life with God for them. And so this, too, is the job of the church to be an effective tool in God's service for the working out of his eternal plan. And that means for us that we need to preach the word, to preach The word of God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without discrimination, wherever we can, as far as we can, in places of hostility, in places where they disdain us, in places where there's rampant godliness. So that there too, God can call those who are his. And grant them faith in Jesus Christ. The faith that will become for them. A people in darkness will become for them life, will become for them salvation. When you embrace the good news that Jesus Christ is the Savior of this world, is the only Savior in which to put your trust, then you're saved. Then you're safe. Then your life becomes marked out. For service to God. That's the faith of God's elect that the Apostle Paul speaks speaks about. And this, you might say, is the first part, the starting point. But it extends beyond as well as the Apostle Paul speaks about his job. He labors not only in calling others to faith, but he works in the nurturing of that faith through teaching of knowledge, teaching the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Take note of that phrase there, and please don't ever forget it, because it's a beautiful phrase that that brings so much into perspective for us. The knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It's a beautifully balanced phrase that shows us a second priority for the church. The starting point is knowledge. Paul in fact, is preoccupied with knowledge throughout his letters. He mentions it very often. Some people think that knowledge, knowing stuff, is elitist. It's cold. It doesn't have any heart. But the Apostle Paul didn't think that. He's a man full of knowledge himself. And he's eager that the church, too, should grow in knowledge. Let us not cast off knowledge as something bad for the church. It's a good thing. It's what the Apostle Paul had been commissioned. To, to carry out for the church. In Colossians 1 verse 9. He says for this reason since the day we heard about you. We've not stopped praying for you. And asking God for what? To fill you with knowledge. The knowledge of his will. Philippians 1 verse 9. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more. In knowledge and depth of insight. Knowledge is extremely useful, is critical for the church. But this knowledge is not is not mere information. It's not trivia. It's not knowing just just facts and dates and, and things like that that we can use to show off to other people or, or to puff ourselves up. The Apostle Paul also says knowledge puffs up. you got to be careful with knowledge. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't try to attain it. No, this knowledge is to be practical knowledge. Knowledge that becomes internalized and then translates into godly living. So it's knowledge that works itself out into godly living, or as he said in Philippians, into love that abounds more and more. The image that comes to mind for me in this is perhaps a strange one, but it's of a fertilizer spreader a fertilizer spreader. You've got a hopper in a fertilizer spreader, and you've got the spreader thing on the bottom. And pretty soon, some of you are going to be pulling out your spreader from your shed or your garage and spread some lime on your grass to keep out the moss or fertilizer to help the grass grow. And you know how uh, that fertilizer spreader works, right? You You pile the fertilizer into the hopper, and it channels down into the spreader where it gets spread out over your whole lawn. Well, this knowledge that the Apostle Paul is speaking about works the same way. The knowledge, of course, comes into your mind, but then it's to filter down into your heart and and through your heart. It's to spread out into your whole life through godly living, through acts of love and deeds of service. And the point is, of course, that that knowledge must come in the mind, but, but it must not sit there. If your fertilizer just sits in your hopper while you're walking through your lawn, you're not fertilizing anything. It has to filter down into that spreader and get spread out. Fertilizer that gets stuck in the hopper isn't any good. And of course, along with this analogy comes a very important warning for us. You have to put the right stuff in the hopper. You have to put the right stuff in the hopper. If you put the wrong stuff in the top of the fertilizer spreader, then the wrong stuff comes out of the bottom of the fertilizer spreader. It's a pretty simple point. If you travel east through the valley toward Abbotsford, Chilliwack, in the months to come, you'll see different kinds of hoppers traveling through the farmer's fields there, spreading all sorts of fertilizer of a different kind, all sorts of the smelly stuff over fields there. And it's coming out of the bottom of the hopper because that's what the farmer put into the top of the hopper. But you've got to be careful with what you put into your mind. So Paul says that we need to have knowledge, but we need to have the right knowledge. We need to have knowledge of the truth. He labors to fill the minds of the church with truth. And the source of truth is God's word. The knowledge that we need is not the stinky stuff that our world throws into their hoppers. No, we need the truth of God's word to fill our minds. And while we're putting the truth of God's word into our mind, we need to be careful about what else we're putting into our mind. We want more and more and more of the good stuff. Our theme for this year for the home visits is scripture, is the study of scripture searching of Scripture, sharing in that with others. Let's continue to be diligent in reading God's Word, in understanding God's Word, in filling our minds with God's Word, and filling our our, our ears with with those who who are able to teach God's Word in a way that's faithful to it. Because when we do that, then that knowledge can come down. And we can grow in godly living. And we can learn how to love and how to build up and how to work effectively in the kingdom of Christ. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, through the rest of this letter, will get into the specifics of what it looks like to live a godly life in this world. And so we'll get to that in due time. As God's slave and apostle, Paul works to build the church up in faith, and a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. But he also teaches them about eternal life. It's been pointed out that Paul is likely speaking about a kind of progression in verse 1. From faith to knowledge to godliness. And you can certainly see that faith leads to knowledge, which leads to godliness. Justification flows into sanctification. That's that's how the faith is, is carried out, is worked out. But it would be wrong to conclude then that, that godly living is therefore the, the very end goal of the Christian life. Godly living is not the, the very end goal of the Christian life. Oh, it's it's a tremendous part of our life in Jesus Christ. But the reality is that everything that we do here and now is done in, in a shadow of something greater to come. And everything that we do in the here and now, even our godly works, is for the purpose of a greater and more beautiful reality. It's the reality that's expressed as the apostle Paul speaks about the hope of eternal life. As the text says, faith and knowledge rest on the hope of eternal life. But the hope of eternal life is not only the foundation for faith and knowledge, but also the goal. If you were to consult a few other uh, translations of the Bible, the the newer version of the NIV, for example, or the ESV, they translate not uh, on the foundation, not resting on the hope of eternal life, but faith and knowledge for the hope of eternal life. It's the goal. It's the goal of faith and the goal of knowledge is eternal life. And so let's unpack those words, eternal life, or the hope of eternal life to get a better sense of what they mean. In the first place, we need to understand what hope is from a, from a biblical perspective. A lot of times when we talk about hope, we're talking about something in the future about which we're quite uncertain. It's something that, that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the future. But whether it's going to happen, we're not sure. That's that's how we speak about hope. For example, I hope we get a second pastor soon. It's in the future. Not sure when that's going to happen. You hope that there will be nice, nice weather this week. It's in the future. You're not sure whether it's going to happen. We have no certainty about these things, and that's why we use the word hope. But when the Bible speaks about the hope that we have as Christians, it's a different kind of hope. It's a totally different character of hope. It's not that there's no certainty about it. There is certainty about it because of the work of Jesus Christ, but it's hope because we don't yet realize it fully. There's a significant unrealized aspect of eternal life that means that we don't yet have it. And so we hope. Hope stands between the certainty of Christ's already accomplished work on the cross and the expectation of his finished work, that which he promised he would do. And so hope stands right in the middle. We know what Jesus Christ has done. We know what he's going to do. And so now we live in hope. since his accomplished work is already complete and it's complete for us and since his word is is true our hope is certain the hope of faith shall not deceive us this then leads to an understanding of what eternal life is in short it's a life lived at home and in the presence with god that which jesus christ has gone to the cross and risen from the dead for Through faith in Jesus Christ, yes, you are given eternal life so that you already now, by faith, have eternal life. You have the certainty of eternal life. But you do not yet experience it fully. In fact, you only experience a small fraction of it. The next step that you take is when you die. When you die. Then you move along to the next step. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I was able to read that with the family of Sister Welfing yesterday. The Apostle Paul says that, that now we're clothed with an earthly tent. It's just a temporary dwelling. But we long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. With our with our eternal dwelling. We long to go to heaven and be in the presence of God there. In fact, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, that's the purpose for which God made us. But even that is not complete, because eternal life will not be fully realized until the last day, until that day when Jesus Christ returns, when the dead are raised, and we live in the new heavens and the new earth, completely at home and in the presence of the Almighty God. This is the plan that God had from the very beginning. And we live... In the middle of this plan. God laid out the plans on a blueprint before the creation of the world. And now we live in the middle of this plan being worked out. We live in the middle of a construction job site. We don't live with the finished product. We live with the work in progress. And so things look very unfinished now. But the finished copy is with God. And he knows what he's doing. And he's bringing it about step by step until it's finally accomplished. And this is in stark contrast, of course, with how everything looks here, isn't it? It's striking that immediately after speaking about God's promise from eternity and in his plan, Paul in verse 5 says to, to Timothy, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. Yes, this work of building the church is unfinished. It continues on Today as well. And there's all sorts of of difficult and, and hard aspects of that unfinished work. This is the reality of living in the hope of eternal life. It's a lot of unfinished things. There's a lot that the church still has to accomplish until that time when hope is no longer hope and the fullness of God's plan is complete. But God's plan will be brought to completion. Because as the Apostle Paul says here, because as the word of God testifies elsewhere, because as God's whole revelation makes clear, God does not lie. Yeah, we live with unfinished work here. We live with all sorts of things that come along with that unfinished work. We see people struggling with sin. We see unfortunate events happen in the lives of loved ones. We see loved ones pass on to glory, but leaving others with grief and sorrow here. We see a world of sin. We see so many people lost in sin. We see so much unfinished work in the world here. And it affects us and it makes us sad, but it also makes us long. And with the word of God as our guide, it also fills us with hope. That God is not going to leave the work that as yet is unfinished, unfinished. God is moving us all along to eternal life. God is moving his church along. God is moving this whole world to a point where it too will be renewed and cleansed and purified. And he will dwell on the earth once again. Until that time, the church is to continue to grow in faith and in practical knowledge and in the hope of eternal life. And to do that, the church has to continue to preach the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the one through whom all that is to happen will be accomplished. The one who has sealed it by his death and resurrection, who has given us the guarantee by his spirit. And by his word, he will bring it to completion. It's his gospel that must go into this world. And Paul is a herald of that. The apostles were the first preachers of that work of Jesus Christ, through which we gain access into this eternal life. God has appointed him for a specific task in proclaiming the gospel. But proclaiming the gospel has not ended with Paul. Nor has it ended with the apostles. But as we confess in the Nicene Creed, we are one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We don't have the apostles anymore, but we still have the charge that the apostles had, which was to preach the good news of Jesus Christ in this world. Preaching and preachers are not the church. But Christ has ordained that the church and that this work of bringing about eternal life would be carried out through the proclamation of the gospel. And so preaching is a priority of the church. It was a priority of the Apostle Paul and it remains a priority for the church today. It's through the preaching that the church continues from generation to generation. It's through the preaching that people are called to faith and are taught how to live godly lives through the knowledge that they're given. The preaching of the word of salvation revealed by God is our priority here, and it's our priority throughout the world. We should be supporting the proclamation of God's word as much as we can, wherever we can faithfully do that. Because it's more than our priority. It's Christ's priority. This is what Jesus Christ is doing, is accomplishing. Yes, Jesus Christ himself is speaking to the church and speaking to the world through the proclamation of his word. So there are all sorts of applications that we can take from that. Let's take just this one for now. We need preachers. If preaching is a priority for the church, then the p- church continues to need Preachers. Now. Five years from now. Twenty years from now. The next generation. Until the next step in Christ's plan. Is taken. And he returns on the clouds of heaven. We need preachers. Men. Consider. The calling. To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. As young men. Especially within the church. You need to consider. Whether. Whether. Or not, you are being called to lifelong service in the church to give yourself and your whole life to this task of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ for the church and to the world. The same good news that the Apostle Paul so long ago proclaimed to the world. The same good news that Jesus Christ himself would have us preach need to consider that, because it's a priority for the church. And it may be that Jesus Christ would have you make it a priority for your life. And so, growing in faith and knowledge, hoping in eternal life, and preaching the word, this is what the church is called to do until the plan of God is complete, the purposes of our lord are accomplished and it's for this then that we need the constant outflowing of god's grace and the constant presence of god's peace to be with us amen this has been a sermon from the langley canadian reformed church for more information please visit us on the web